Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. 63-year-old Arthur Johnson lived on the tough streets of Philadelphia when he was a teenager. In 1970, at the age of 18, Johnson was involved in a gang fight that resulted in the shooting and stabbing death of another young man. Johnson confessed to the murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Nine years later, Johnson was sent to restricted housing or restricted release, what most of us would refer to as solitary confinement. This came after an escape attempt. Almost 37 years later, Arthur Johnson is still in solitary confinement at Frackville State Prison. That's right, 37 years in solitary confinement. Johnson has sued Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel and several other Department of Corrections officials. A federal judge last week ruled that Johnson should be removed from solitary and put in the general prison population. Solitary confinement is the topic of this segment of today's Smart Talk. Joining us, Brett Grode of the Abolition Law Center and Jamelia Morgan, a fellow with the American Civil Liberties Union National Prison Project. Mr. Grode. Morgan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having Scott, us. Great That's to be here. Grody, by the way. Oh, it's Grody? Okay, like Jerry Grody of the New York Mets. That's I, <laughs> I thought that. Uh, let me uh, tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at org. Mr. Grody, let me start with you. Uh, I kind of uh, provided some background there on Arthur Johnson's case. Uh, he was sentenced to life, no parole for shooting and stabbing Jerome Wakefield to death in 1970. Uh, was this a sound conviction or is that even uh, a question in this case? Uh, that's certainly a question. The only evidence against Mr. Johnson at trial was uh, a confession, a statement that he had signed, although at the time that he signed it, two months after his 18th birthday, he was illiterate and at ages 8 and 14, he had tested in the intellectual disability range. The testimony at trial was that Mr. Johnson believed he had been arrested for an aggravated assault, not for a homicide, and he disputes his involvement in, in that homicide to this day. Um, and given what we now know about false confessions and the reality of the such, uh, large part thanks to DNA evidence, which has shown many to be patently untrue, um, and given what we know about the vulnerability of those with intellectual disabilities to uh, police coercion or to aggressive interrogation tactics, I think there is serious reason to question the conviction. Was this case ever appealed? It was appealed, and the main issue on appeal was whether or not the confession was voluntary, given uh, the intellectual disability that he had. So, in 19, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 1970s, the PA Supreme Court um, held that it was a valid conviction. We're currently challenging his sentence under those rulings of the United States Supreme Court, which has struck down life without parole sentences for those who were were juveniles, and we're making arguments that that ruling and the factors involved in it should still apply to Mr. Johnson, um, even though he was two months older than age 18. Mm -hmm. There, and, you know, just to provide a little more background, there was a witness who said that uh, uh, he saw Arthur Johnson commit this, uh, this murder, uh, and that witness did pass a polygraph test, and I know that, uh, you know, that's not admissible in, in court and all that. But let's get to, he was convicted. You say that, uh, you know, you're looking at uh, at his conviction, or at least at his sentence. 
But the, between the beginning of his detention until 1979, he tried to escape at least once and maybe a couple times. Describe his final attempt. Well, that's going to be very difficult to do because the Department of Corrections records are not very uh, specific in what he was alleged to have done. But from what they have, uh, what they say is that in 1979 he was involved with others in an escape attempt from the State Correctional Institution at Pittsburgh. A guard was um, bound and tied and left in a closet. It doesn't say that the guard was injured. It doesn't say that Mr. Johnson was the individual who did that or what his role was. And it said that Mr. Johnson was found with two zip guns in his possession. And these are essentially do-it-yourself, homemade firearms that can be of various degrees of um, efficacy or uh, lethality. Uh, Mr. Johnson disputes his involvement in that particular escape attempt, although there were other escape attempts in the 70s that um, uh, he was involved in. Now, but that wasn't the latest attempt. In 1984, while he was in the restricted housing unit in solitary confinement, he did um, get out of his cell, and he didn't make it any further than the cell block in that attempt, so he didn't get very far and wasn't able to get out of the cell block. And then in 1987, he got a misconduct for an escape attempt. The records don't indicate what occurred in 1987, but I know from discussions with my clients that at that time there was he was back at State Correctional Institution Pittsburgh. There was a disturbance, a riot in the prison. Um, the prison caught on fire. Everybody in the solitary units had spilled out into the yard, and uh, in that instance he was given an escape attempt and no doubt plenty of others were also given rule violations in other charges. I mean, that was a prison riot type scenario. So he received a, a misconduct for that. Uh, but in 1979, in response to the escape attempts, he was uh, placed in solitary confinement. Uh, just kind of give us a sense of what that is like. Describe solitary confinement where Arthur Johnson has been held. It's 23 or 24 hours a day in the cell. The one hour out of the cell happens five days a week in an exercise cage, not bigger, much bigger than the cell itself. The cell is maybe seven by 12 feet, uh, give or take. Um, nowadays, the door of the cell is solid steel with two thin windows that you can look out onto the cell block. Uh, can't. It's very difficult to speak with anybody outside of the cell door. You have to raise your voice, whether you're talking to staff or attempting to talk to somebody else who's incarcerated. You risk uh, a rule violation if you do that. All meals are taken in your cell um, by oneself. Um, you have very serious limitations on the amount of property that you can have, the amount of visitations that you can have, the amount of phone calls you can have if one is permitted any. Um, all, con all visits are non-contact, and one of the most um, chilling parts of Mr. Johnson's testimony in July is when he acknowledged that he had not touched another human being aside from incidental contact with prison guards since 1979 until the morning of that hearing when he shook his lawyer's hands. So it is being locked in a you know small, cramped, concrete and steel uh, room that is also your bathroom. Um, it virtually. You, 
the entirety of your existence. Let me play devil's advocate for just a moment. And I have a statement from the Department of Corrections coming up uh, in, a, in a few minutes, uh, by the way. Uh, but from what you've described with uh, the escape attempts uh, that, you know, and we will get into most of our discussion is going to be about solitary confinement rather than Arthur Johnson's case. Uh, but this doesn't sound like a model prisoner. Uh, so what what are your I mean, 37 years obviously is a long time to be in here. And this is what we're going to discuss. But uh, the Department of Corrections say that they reserve this for or restricted housing for those uh, those inmates who are a threat or, you know, escape a threat, uh, escape threat or uh, could cause harm to uh, to the guards, other inmates, that kind of thing. What, what's your response to that? Well, as to the last point there is no evidence in the record in the Department of Corrections produced none that Mr. Johnson was a threat to uh, other people who were incarcerated there or to staff. As to the escape threat issue, um, the evidence produced at the hearing showed that there are many individuals who not only had escape attempts that were more recent than Mr. Johnson, but actually escaped from Pennsylvania prisons that the department had reintegrated into the general population of the prisons successfully. And whatever the security uh, features were of the state prisons in 1979, currently they are of such a uh, formidable nature that Solitary confinement is not a legitimate technique for preventing an escape risk. There's been only one escape in Pennsylvania prisons since uh, in the last 16 years. That was an individual who was uh, essentially able to secrete himself um, uh, within a, a bin that was, I think, used for compost. Uh, he had a block worker job. He was low security. He was driven off grounds because somebody didn't do their job. And these institutions are more than capable of keeping people who want to escape and who dream all day about escaping, and they simply will not be given the opportunity. And we can go over that in detail. So, you know, the department can say what it wants about keeping somebody in solitary confinement because of past escape attempts or that this is a necessary technique, but the evidence shows otherwise in their own practices in regards to those who actually did escape from Pennsylvania prisons shows otherwise. Right, let me, uh, um, the Department of Corrections, Pennsylvania Department of Corrections provided me with uh, a fairly lengthy statement. I'm going to pick and choose. I'll put the whole thing on our website, WITF.org. It says, while the Department of Corrections cannot speak to Mr. Johnson's specific case as it is still pending, we would like to highlight the significant work that has led to the Department of Corrections being widely recognized as a leader in the nationwide effort to safely reduce the use of restricted housing. Most significant is that the Department of Corrections does not use restricted housing to house any seriously mentally ill or youthful inmates. Uh, the department is engaged in further reviewing its use of administrative segregation overall. There are a number of reasons that an inmate would be placed in long-term administrative segregation, but such placement only occurs after the DOC has conducted a thorough review and only as a last resort of the roughly 49,000 inmates in the system. Only 112 currently are in long-term administrative 
segregation. Reason for this includes a history of assaults against staff or inmates, sexual abuse history, escape history, or serious serious escape attempt, threat to the orderly operation of a facility, such as organizing a gang that might pose as a security threat. In March, the DOC was awarded a grant to develop and test the swift, certain, fair prison discipline model alternative to administrative segregation. Uh, the DOC launched its pilot program at uh, Somerset, uh, which already proved to reduce the number of misconducts, infractions, and grievances. Um, in 2015, there were 20 assaults on staff at Somerset. As of April 2016, there were only three. That's just part of uh, the statement from the Department of Corrections. And as I said, we'll put the, the full uh, statement on our website, WITF.org. Your response to what you just heard there? There's a couple of parts of that statement that are particularly misleading. One, for the Department of Corrections to refer to itself as a leader in reforming its solitary confinement practices obfuscates the fact that the Department of Correction was pushed reluctantly, kicking and screaming, due to enormous scrutiny that was launched by people in solitary confinement and then picked up by the United States Justice Department, which under the uh, um, during the tenure of current Secretary John Wetzel, found that the entire state of Pennsylvania's Department of Corrections was violating the Eighth Amendment by warehousing people with mental illness and intellectual disability in solitary confinement. And there was a major class action lawsuit filed by the Disability Rights Network. So that's where the credit lies for forcing these changes on Pennsylvania. The second point that is misleading is the issue of keeping people without serious mental illness in solitary confinement. While I will acknowledge there has certainly been reduction, there's been change in policy, and people have been diverted from those units, um, there are still many others who continue to cycle in and out of solitary confinement, uh, but they are being either underdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all, or being labeled as behavioral problems when they clearly have mental health issues. And the third key point is, while the department says there's only 115 or thereabouts who are in long-term solitary confinement, um, they don't define long-term. What they're referring to is the restricted release list, but there are many, many others who have been held um, more than 90 days, more than 180 days in multiple years in solitary confinement who are not on this restricted release list uh, subset of administrative classification. So there are there's a, a long way to go towards uh, reducing, and I would argue eliminating, the use of solitary confinement within the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. Hey, I'm going to, um, Jamelia Morgan, I'm going to bring you into the conversation here in just a moment, but uh, uh, question, in my introduction, I, I mentioned that a federal judge has ruled that Arthur Johnson should be placed back into uh, the general prison population. Uh, that process of getting him out of solitary confinement, what was the biggest obstacle? Um, the biggest obstacle to his transition to the general population? Or, no, the court case, going to court oh. and, and getting a, a judge to, to rule that he should be placed back in general population. Well, I mean, maybe at a more general level and not necessarily specific to Mr. Johnson's case, is that the courts have been very deferential to 
prison officials and to security decisions. And there's a long body of case law coming from the United States Supreme Court and reinforced by the U.S. Congress that makes it very difficult to win injunctive relief, you know, to win a court order in a case like this, um, and to set limits on solitary confinement. The Supreme Court instructed way back in 1978 that the duration of conditions of confinement is an issue of constitutional significance the courts have to take into effect. Um, but there has not been a body of case law establishing any kind of minimal thresholds um, or a certain number of years in which this type of isolation is going to cause a constitutional violation, right? So having a case that's going to be able to overcome the substantial uh, deference uh, that the courts give to uh, prison officials uh, was a significant challenge. But um, as I think anybody can tell, 36 years is certainly uh, about as extreme as it gets. What did the judge actually rule in making his decision? Right. He ruled that since it was a preliminary injunction motion, which is kind of an emergency order, we don't have to litigate the full trial yet in order to get relief because our client will suffer irreparable injury if he continues to be held there um, while we litigate the case. He said it was a reasonable likelihood that we would succeed on the merits and that the defendants were violating the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, that he was being deprived of the basic necessities of human life, including social interaction, environmental stimulation, his mental health was suffering and at a risk of even further degradation. And he ordered the Department of Corrections to um, discuss with plaintiff's counsel and come up with a plan in order to transition Mr. Johnson back to the general population in 90 days. And during that transition time, he would be provided with progressively more and more opportunities for social interaction and time out of his cell. And that plan was actually just submitted to the court yesterday and, and will begin um, very soon. I want to talk about solitary confinement overall in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Brett Grody of the Appalachian, or Abolition Law Center and Jamelia Morgan, a fellow with the American Civil Liberties Union National Prison Project. We're talking about, well, so far we've been talking about the case of Arthur Johnson, prison inmate uh, right now at uh, the State Correctional Institution at Frackville. He's been in solitary confinement for 37 years. And we're going to be talking about solitary confinement overall in just a moment. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, one 800 Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Jamelia Morgan, let me bring you into the conversation now and talk about the issue overall. Uh, how many incarcerated Americans are kept in solitary confinement, and is there an accurate way to quantify that? Um, good morning, Scott. It's great to be here. Um, so we definitely do have data on the number of individuals that are subjected to solitary confinement. Um, a report came out a little over a year ago by the Arthur Lyman program at Yale Law School and the Association of State Corrections Administrators that capture about uh, 80,000 to 100,000 people held in 
solitary confinement or what we would also call uh, broadly restrictive housing to kind of capture the various ways that departments of corrections uh, characterize uh, the levels of restriction. Um, and so we know uh, from that that there are vulnerable groups uh, that are subjected to solitary confinement within that, whether it's youth or those with mental illness, uh, uh, LGBT prisoners and people with disabilities. Uh, but we need more data, certainly, to capture uh, the specific and concrete numbers uh, for these groups that are held into uh, solitary confinement every year. Now, when you say that, uh, you know, I have seen that data that suggests that uh, those groups that you listed, and I think there are others as well, mm-hmm. uh, some, you know, most of the people who are put in solitary confinement don't have high school uh, diplomas. It's not like, uh, you know, the prison officials are looking for their credentials or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but are you saying that there's, this is somehow discriminatory or is it just that that's what the statistics show? Well, I would say, um, and I think we do at the the prison project agree that solitary confinement uh, is overused. And so certainly there are vulnerable groups that are getting into solitary. uh, Let's take up you know, persons with mental illness, it could be that they are being disciplined for behaviors related to their mental illness. And that would certainly be discriminatory if we look at laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act that protect people from being discriminated on the basis of disability. Um, But beyond that, we're also seeing as in, you know, Mr. Johnson's case, there might be, um, you know, a determination made many years ago that there's a general threat to the safety and security of the institution. And uh, no meaningful review has happened since that determination was made. And you have people that are sort of languishing in solitary confinement uh, when they don't pose an ongoing threat to the safety and security of the institution. And so, you know, given the opportunities uh, for discrimination, not saying that that is currently happening, but certainly the opportunity to have that uh, discrimination occur, we, you know, at the ACLU want to make sure that, uh, first of all, that solitary confinement, given the harms, is no longer a penal practice in our prisons and jails uh, here in America. Um, But if it must be used, that it's only when it's absolutely necessary and for the least amount of time possible, and only after all of the uh, uh, least restrictive alternatives have been exhausted. How How unusual is it for someone to be in solitary for 37 years? You know, it's it's hard to really say because the data is so limited. And I think, you know, we've heard cases out of Louisiana, obviously the Angola Three and the length of their sentences uh, for uh, decades, uh, 30 years uh, or more. Uh, we're hearing that there have been, obviously, the California litigation in Ashker uh, challenged the lengthy, indefinite sentences for prisoners at Pelican Bay. Uh, and many of them had been in solitary for decades. But we don't have concrete numbers. We just have a sense that... Uh, given the volume of people that are subjected to solitary and the lack of meaningful review in many state correctional systems, that there may be people in solitary that have been there uh, for many years, if not decades. You, you, I don't know, you kind of touched on this, but you mentioned alternatives. Uh, are there more productive means for dealing with infractions than solitary confinement, in your opinion? Certainly, and I think, um, I, you know, I would direct uh, everyone to check out the uh, Department of Justice's re- recent report uh, and recommendations on the uh, use of restrictive housing in the federal system, and they lay out uh, potential policies uh, and really call for state departments of corrections to look at alternative forms of housing uh, for, for instance, uh, prisoners with mental illness, um, offering treatment-based solutions as opposed to punitive measures to ensure that people with mental illness can function in uh, the general prison 
Asian population safely um, and also get the psychological or the you know the psychiatric care that they need. Um, but we would really you know turn to the state departments of corrections themselves. I mean there have been many innovations, uh, whether through litigation or um, you know uh, advocate uh, reforms that have really uh, encouraged these departments of corrections to uh, rely less on solitary confinement and more on treatment-based solutions. Um, to improve uh, the treatment of these prisoners overall. But, okay, now you, you've kind of focused, and we've talked a lot about uh, inmates who are, are mentally ill, suffering from mental illness. But what about those who are just di- disruptive inmates that are behavioral problems, who are threats? Are there alternatives? Are there better ways, in your opinion, to handle it than solitary confinement? Yes. Um, you know, w- Brett sort of described the conditions of solitary. These are highly restricted. There's barely any time out of cell. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's two hours. There is a, it's very possible to have separation without solitary confinement. These um, inmates that are perhaps, um, uh, as you term, disruptive, um, we imagine that there's not that many of them, but to the extent that there are, uh, they can be separated without being subjected to conditions uh, so restrictive and so isolating and, and psychologically damaging as solitary. So uh, if it's separation, that would include more time out of cell uh, so that they can, uh, you know, be out and exercise and have interactions with other, uh, whether it's staff or other inmates, have visitation, essentially more opportunities to get out of their cells, to have privileges to remain in human contact uh, with family. Um, Those things are very important when we think about the fact that 95% of uh, folks in prison will return to our communities. We want to make sure that they're not being completely damaged and completely isolated while in solitary. So I would really highlight, you know, separation does not have to be solitary confinement, doesn't have to be segregation in the sense that we are currently seeing um, our prisons engaged in now. It can be uh, separation safely, but with access to these important human interactions, environmental and social stimulation that we all as humans need to survive. I'm going to talk about what Arthur Johnson may go through once he is back in the general population in just a moment. But something you just said that I wanted to follow up on, uh, you said that uh, you don't think that there are that many disruptive inmates. These people are in prison. I mean, they broke the law, and many of them are, are there because of for violent regions. I mean, you, you think that most inmates are not disruptive or that there aren't as many as what many people believe? Well, I guess for me, uh, knowing the data, I know that about 40% of the folks that we find in jails and 32% that uh, we find in prisons have some type of mental illness, and that's a high number. And then I'm adding that on to the fact that there are therapeutic interventions that you can have to control behavior and to ensure uh, that prisons function, sorry, prisoners function um, safely and productively within these corrections institutions. But if we really think about the goal of rehabilitation, yes, prisons are about public safety, but they're also there to rehabilitate. The title of most of the departments of corrections are Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. We should be offering opportunities for uh, those that find themselves in prison to make uh, their lives better, to uh, get access to educational and vocational programs, to uh, have jobs, to basically get the opportunities to thrive while incarcerated. That is really the model that we set up. I didn't create it. It's one that we set up many years ago, but we have not made remain true to. And 
as a result, you're seeing the increase in these punitive measures that are just having the opposite effect. Um, the disruptions in the, the carceral setting, I would argue, are because of these highly punitive and restrictive conditions. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. We only have a few minutes left. I want to thank both of you for uh, joining us today. And I'll ask this question of both of you. Um, but uh, Jamelia Morgan, let me start with you. Uh, what issues may uh, Arthur Johnson face while try to, uh, trying to reintegrate uh, to the general population? I mean, as, as Breck Rohde said earlier, you know, he hasn't had human contact in 37 years other than with, with lawyers. What are some of the, the challenges that he faces? Well, you know, it's hard to speak to every specific situation, but, you know, I would imagine there are, you know, he has been in solitary confinement for 37 years and, as Brett mentioned, has had uh, limited, I mean, social interaction and human interaction. And we have heard generally from our clients that uh, it's hard integrating back into uh, society after that. Um, you haven't been around human beings. Uh, it's been difficult for you to, uh, you know, even hear regular uh, sounds and, um, you know, it could be a jarring experience, and I would hope that uh, for Mr. Johnson, he'd be provided with therapeutic supports to, you know, transition back. But there are alternatives so that uh, it's not a, a, a dramatic uh, return for him and that he can be supported in any sort of carceral system that will allow him to have access to the mental health care that he needs uh, so that he, it's not such a stark or uh, transition back into the general population. Breck Rohde, as, uh, as of right now, he will never see the outside of a, of a prison wall, but he is being integrated back into the general population. From talking with Arthur Johnson, what are his biggest concerns? Uh, how is it being uh, prepared for to uh, integrate him back into the general population? Well, we sought in the court case and won um, not just his transition back to the general population, but for there to be therapy and treatment for the uh, effects of long-term solitary confinement. What Mr. Johnson is actually going to experience will be, of course, um, individual in his own case, but in general, people who have uh, been subjected to long-term solitary confinement exhibit symptoms that are very similar and have strong overlap uh, with those who have been diagnosed with compound post-traumatic stress disorder. So anxiety amongst crowds, anxiety in dealing with other people's and forming new relationships, um, engaging in self-isolating activity because people have been accustomed to that, um, and issues with uh, depression and a whole host of other symptoms that can be associated with this experience, which is profoundly traumatizing. And I think that's what I would like to leave your listeners with in recognizing that whatever sort of security rationales uh, are put forth by the government and by prison systems, solitary confinement or the whole, as it's more colloquially, colloquially uh, known, is uh, a technique to... Uh, um, to punish and to inflict pain, and it is the government inflicting trauma on a profound scale, affecting perhaps 80 to 100,000 plus people currently at this moment in the United States, and it's something that um, has been hidden behind prison walls for a long time, and it's important that it continues to be part of the public discourse about the very serious changes that are needed in the administration of the prison systems in the criminal legal system in this country. Breck Rohde is with the Abolition Law Center. Jamelia Morgan is a fellow with the American Civil Liberties Union National Prison Project. Thank you very much for being with us today. 
Thank you, Thanks Scott. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Most often, one would see clowns at the circus or a child's birthday party. Clowns are funny and goofy, goofy, using physical and slapstick humor to make people laugh. Somewhere along the way, though, or maybe it was just more that people admitted their fears, but clowns became scary to some people. For the past two weeks, we've heard news of clown sightings across the country and here in Pennsylvania. Clowns that have scared children and, and even participated in crimes. We have a new terminology, clown sightings. Joining us on today's program, this segment of the show, is Andrew Stott, an English professor at the University of Buffalo, SUNY. He's a clown historian. Uh, Professor Stott, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Also, Jennifer Diaz. She's a therapist, and she can talk about overcoming your fear of clowns. Ms. Diaz, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Here, let me turn up your microphone. There you go. Hello, thanks for having me. And we also have Jimbo the Clown, although he is not in uh, clown regalia right now. Uh, I guess, can I just call you Jimbo? Yes, you may, certainly. Uh, okay. And Jimbo the Clown joins the longtime cloud and uh, very well known here in central Pennsylvania. If you'd like to weigh in on the clown sightings, what's going on, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Org. All right. I don't even know who to start with. Jim, but let me start with you. Okay. Uh, the term clown sightings is something that uh, maybe just three weeks ago we had never heard of. I mean, this kind of started in, I believe it was the Carolinas, where there were uh, people dressed as clowns, standing near woods, scaring children. Uh, there was a case where they tried to lure some, some children into woods uh, to... Here in Pennsylvania, there have been several. I saw USA Today had uh, a, a map of the United States where they had all the clown sightings pointed out. Saw a local TV station did a story that in Lebanon County, two people dressed as clowns were seen walking on the streets. Now, they didn't break any laws, but uh, they interviewed uh, the police chief. And it was like, if you see these, these people, call the police. All right. When do we get to a point where clown sightings became something really frightening and scary? I'm not really sure if it's just because we're so close to Halloween, but fear of clowns have always been real close to the joy of clowns. I mean, it just takes a different face that could it could become very scary depending on how you look at a child. And I think most of the people out there are doing it just for the fear factor. Hey, let's scare someone. I know that when I'm performing, often someone will come up and say, hey, go say hi to my friend. She loves clowns. And that's the tip off that really the person doesn't care for clowns. And I shouldn't go over and say hi to them. You know, as a professional performer, I'm very aware that there are people nervous around anyone in any kind of costume. And I'm glad that you said people dressed up as clowns because a professional clown would not put himself into that position. We have a code. We have 10 steps that we're supposed to follow. We don't smoke. We don't drink while in costume. We have a behavior code. And we don't go out of our way of to make people afraid of us or to scare them or even make them look bad. 
Jennifer Diaz, now something that Jimbo brought up there uh, is that there has always been a fear of clowns. And one of the things I suggest in my introduction is that maybe one of the things that's that's happening here in the last uh, few years is that maybe people are just I, uh, you know, admitting to that that fear. Would you agree with that, or why, why are people why are there people who are afraid of clowns? I think clowns have been demonized for a long time, for sure. Um, and there is a difference between a fear and a phobia. Okay. You know, I can say, I hate clowns. I don't like clowns. You're clowns a clown hater. Nervous. Oh, not anymore. I'm a reformed clown hater. Okay. Jimbo right. is okay. quite lovely. All so. right. Okay. Well, he's not dressed as a clown <laughs> this morning, so that it's helps. easier. Yeah. Not going to lie. That helps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm disappointed, but Jimbo has to go to work, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. So go ahead. So if you have a fear of something, it makes you uncomfortable, but you're not going to go out of your way to avoid that. A phobia would be something like if you're afraid of heights, you'll probably avoid situations where you have to be in a tall place. However, if you have a phobia, you might avoid a terrific job you've been offered because it's on the eighth floor of a building. That starts to affect everyday life. When something starts to affect everyday life in a negative way, I would call that a phobia. And then we would look probably at some professional treatment. All right. So what do you do to avoid if you have a phobia of clouds? And there is a name for it. That name is? I can't pronounce it. Chlorophobia. <laughs> it's chlorophobia. Chlorophobia. Yes. Uh, but if you have that phobia... Uh, you know, how do you avoid clowns? Well, actually, if you have that phobia, it probably started in childhood, and it's probably a bigger phobia, which includes things like Mickey Mouse and costumed characters. Something may have happened in childhood where maybe something dressed up approached you too suddenly startled you and started a fear, and then instead of having it addressed then, it turned into a snowballing effect and became a phobia where you will avoid things and pleasurable activities in your life because of that. All right. So let me bring uh, Andrew Stott uh, into the conversation. And uh, Professor Stott, uh, you're an expert when it comes to clown history. Before we talk about what's happening today and when uh, in our society uh, there were clowns who were looked at as creepy, let's talk a little bit about the history of clowns. Talk about that a little bit. Um, certainly, I'd be happy to. So I think Jimbo hit the nail on the head when he said that the proximity between the joy of clowns and the fear of clowns, uh, they're very close to one another as ideas, because we can look right back as far as ancient Greece or into the Middle Ages within European culture. And we can see always clowns are on the very margins of society. You know, they are, they uh, tend to be people who are not um, fully um, uh, socialized into the society. They can speak truth to power, so they have this ability to say outrageous things to people in prominent positions and get away with it. They are treated often as scapegoats. If we look in um, the way the fool is treated in a play like King Lear, the fool appears um, on stage, makes these prophetic and apocalyptic statements about the future of the world, and then disappears with the uh, implication that he's died or been hung. So the clowns have always been very close to death. They have that kind of liminal status, this um, status of being sort of somewhat otherworldly and manifesting themselves in society to deliver some kind of outrageous news that other people can't get away with saying. Mm. And before, I, I have a little more history to ask you about, but uh, I didn't ask you, Professor Stott, uh, what do you think is going on right now? What's this phenomena, if we can uh, describe it that way, going on across the country? 
Well, I, I think it's um, I think it's really interesting. I, I think it's um, a real shame that some children have been scared and potentially traumatized by clown sightings. But I also think it's kind of weird and great. You know, I mean, we've heard of folk art. We've heard of outsider art. I kind of think of it as a manifestation of some kind of folk performance art or outsider performance art. We live in absurd times and people are taking upon it themselves to dress up and uh, sort of just appear in their communities uh, with the order, with the purpose seemingly of just sort of unsettling people. You know, they're not committing any crimes. They're not abducting people, as far as we can tell. They're just being weird, and I kind of think that's wonderful. Hmm. One, we've had a couple of people who have called in or sent uh, emails, and I have to admit, this is one of the first things I thought of when, uh, you know, there were people describing clowns as creepy. John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer in Chicago, uh, was a professional clown. He was not a very good professional clown. Well, I've seen uh, his clown face. Oh, really? And, and he... he he lacked a, a bit of training if he was a professional clown. Unfortunately, he was a very good murderer. He killed uh, yes. 33 people. And a lot of people point to John Wayne Gacy as when, you know, there have been, you know, movies where, uh, you know, Stephen King, Insane Clown Posse, Shakes the Clown, other examples. But John Wayne Gacy seems to be the one in popular culture that many people look at and say that's when clowns became creepy. Professor, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it's a much kind of longer stream within culture. Certainly, Stephen King's It, and the um, the the expose of John Wayne Gacy. I don't believe he was a professional clown. I think he just dressed up as clown for some charity events and things like that. Okay, so he wasn't um, a pro. Yeah. No, I'd certainly not. I, not not as I understand it, anyway. But um, you know, we can trace this back really quite far. I mean, as, as far back as the 19th century, one of the most famous clowns in the history of clowning was a British comedian known as uh, named Joseph Grimaldi. And um, Joseph Grimaldi was incredibly famous during his days, probably the second or third most famous Englishman after the King and Lord Byron. And um, he was um, sort of riddled throughout his life with uh, problems of depression and melancholia and also physical debilitation because of the extreme nature of his performances, the extreme physical demands he placed on himself. And so was there, there was this myth grew up around him that he was this incredible provoker of hilarity on stage who was profoundly miserable off stage. And so this kind of dual identity myth grew up around him. And this became really the kind of legacy to clowning in a way. The idea that um, one kind of compensates, overcompensates for one's personal problems by performing in this outrageous manner and dressing up. And so subsequently, I think that got into the culture. And there's always been this idea that if you dress up as a clown, you're kind of hiding something, whether that be your own personal troubles, you know, like here with Krusty the Clown in The Simpsons, you know, someone who drinks and smokes and is morally bankrupt, or whether it's... um. Or whether it's something else, you know, some some um, John Wayne Gacy-like horrific secret. And I think that has developed. I mean, it's not unusual for us to think about just general mainstream comedians. I mean, not people who actually wear the clown 
uh, Slap and Motley or the, or the clothes, but to think of them as being funny as somehow compensating for some kind of developmental trauma or disadvantage that they had to overcome. I mean, just think of someone, the sad case of Robin Williams, right? He's just incredibly funny, incredibly gifted and talented, brought so much joy to people. But obviously he was struggling with depression and with psychological um, illness throughout his life. And so that becomes, again, a reinforcement of this idea that comedy and humor and the talent to make people laugh compensates for or covers up for something much darker. Let's take a phone call. Dave is on the road right now on U.S. Route 15. Dave, what's your question or comment? All right, thank you, Scott, and I'm enjoying your program, as always. Uh, My comment is uh, something the professor just alluded to about moral bankruptcy and how, how clowns and many other good things in our lives have been perverted by people who apparently, uh, get their jollies by inflicting uh, fear and things like that. I think it's an example of our society and the sickness, the mental illness that uh, is uh, out there in society, that they turn something nice like clowns and uh, they turn it into something bad that makes people fearful. I I grew up with Bozo the Clown on TV and then saw my first clowns at the the, uh, Clyde Brothers and uh, Cole Cole Brothers. Cole Brothers. Clyde Beatty uh, Circus, yeah. That's right. That's right. I saw I saw my first clown there, and I was uh, amazed and uh, thinking that uh, my next career might be as a clown to make people happy. And I would like to hear more about uh, <laughs> professional clowns from your uh, clown Jimbo. There, oh, I will I do that. Thank you very much, Dave. So, Jimbo, uh, what about uh, what uh, you know, Dave's opinion there that um, you know maybe this is a bigger. Uh, example of how we are taking something that is good and always has been good and turned it into something not so good. Well, I agree with that. And I know that professional clowns work very hard to perfect their uh, abilities. Uh, I was invited to a convention early in my career because I had started out just putting on the makeup and doing a couple magic tricks, and then someone called me and said, hey, you know, there's a convention coming up, and my eyes opened up. There's an entire industry out there. In fact, if you are interested in learning more about clowning, there's a convention coming up in November in Mechanicsburg, Mid-Atlantic Clown Association, November 9th through the 13th. We'd love to have you out there if you want to learn more. It made a difference in my clowning abilities to meet with other people that had the same mindset to make people happy. And these are the tools that you need to know, uh, whether it's making balloon animals or face painting or juggling or magic tricks or just learning how to walk funny and think like a clown. Uh, Clowns will look at something totally different than a normal person. A a tolerable brush becomes a hairbrush because we take objects and we use them in different ways. So the education that we, the time that we take to get educated about being a clown, the history of clowns. And um, I did want to mention that this is not just in the United States. It's also in England. I have some contacts there. He's been contacted. There's been sightings in England. And it's just a shame because we work so hard to put a good front on clowning and making kids happy and it's getting perverted by these people dressing up and making us look bad yeah that that conference you're talking about in november security may be tight 
I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clowning around yeah. with you, Jimbo. Yeah. So Jennifer Diaz, for th- those people who have been frightened by clowns and maybe r- realize now that they have a phobia, and probably, could, you know, I could have this question with almost any phobia, but how do you overcome it? You I mean, you said yourself that uh, you overcome your uh, your hatred of, of clowns. Yes. If you have a phobia... If we're talking about characters and clowns most specifically, what I would do is first talk with you about that and explore why that fear or that phobia may exist. And then we would do what would be called exposure therapy, where I would show a picture of a clown and we would process the feelings that come up from that. And from there, maybe we would either try on an out you know a clown shoes clown hat something like that and process the feelings that come up because if this is an actual phobia it is terrorized feelings it is feeling like i'm going to die it is sweating it is palpitations it's a very serious physiological response as well as a psychological response so we would inch by inch get closer maybe even looking at a movie of a clown and then a clown behind glass and then a clown eventually with a lot of discussion and processing, you know, face-to-face with the clown. Do you expect that with these clown sightings, and again, I never thought I would be, you know, uttering those words, with these clown sightings that there will be more people that uh, will understand or at least admit that the, they were afraid, or maybe they weren't before, but are now, because this is being handled, uh, at least in the news media, as something sinister. That could be. It very well could be. Um, a lot of times people will say that they hate clowns as opposed to they're afraid of clowns, um, but I think that it's pretty much the same thing. Um, I don't know if I'll see anybody in my office because they're afraid of clowns, but I would be happy to treat them and discuss it further but usually things like clowns can be avoided in adult life and you don't have to acknowledge that you have a phobia because you don't have to go places where there are clowns. Jennifer I don't want to put you on the spot but you're smiling at Jimbo with a little bit of a nervous uh, smile there. Are you afraid of Jimbo? I think I'm more afraid of radio than Jimbo. Ah, okay. is, that, is that what it is? Okay. Yeah I know one could be afraid of, of, of Jimbo like that. So uh, Professor Stott uh, so where do we go with this i mean this is probably uh, i don't know when we're talking about the history of clowning this is probably just uh, one stop along the way we'll talk about how in 2016 there were these clown sightings and we probably will get over it and uh, as long as nothing happens although there was a murder last week in in reading i believe it was berks county and uh, the suspect was dressed as a clown um that obviously scare a lot of people. But, Professor, is this just a bump in the road? Well, I don't know about that. Um, I I mean, the membership of professional clown organizations has been on the decline. Um, Clown alleys are not as well populated as they used to be. It's not a profession that people are going into in the same number that they used to. You know, and this is um, this is something that the clown profession itself has commented upon, you know, with some consternation, obviously. I think what's happened, and I think this has happened gradually, and it certainly happened over the course of the 1970s and 80s, is that the the popular clown image, you know, the white face, the red nose, the, the, the vivid hair, 
has actually um, moved moved across from a figure of childhood fun, and it and it, it's entered the canon of monsters. By which I mean that it used to be something very much associated with childhood entertainment and with the circus and with all those joyful things, but gradually it's found its way into the panoply of figures like werewolves and vampires and uh, the mummy and all these kinds of things that have now more associated with the genre of horror. Professor, I'm going to... I'm going to have to cut you off, unfortunately, because I'm, I'm, I'm out of time. But I want to thank uh, Andrew Stott, who is an English professor at the University of Buffalo, SUNY, clown historian, Jennifer Diaz, the therapist, over at Talking About Overcoming Phobia, and Jimbo the Clown, who has just given me a picture of himself with green hair and uh, his red nose, a very happy-looking clown. Thank all three of you for being with us today. Can I say one thing before I go? i got about five seconds. Happy birthday, Mom. Okay. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking uh, with former Senator Ron Paul.